Most of the Psalms are uh, intensely personal and written in first person, I language, me language. This Psalm, Psalm 46, very well-known Psalm, especially these verses, is a corporate Psalm, a Psalm of we, right? Uh, It lends itself to a community of faith, of trust, and of love. So listen now to what the Spirit is saying to you and to the church as we uh, engage our first reading from Scripture this morning, taken from the 46th Psalm, beginning at the first verse. Listen now to what the Spirit is saying to you and to the church. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth should change, though the mountains shake in the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble with its tumult, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of the city. It shall not be moved. God will help it when the morning dawns. The nations are in uproar, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. The word of the Lord. Our second scripture reading this morning comes to us from the book of John, the 20th chapter, verses 1 to 18. Let's listen again to what God is saying to the church. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Then Peter and the other disciple set out and went toward the tomb. The two were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent down to look in and saw the linens wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen wrappings lying there, but the cloth that had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples returned to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had been lying, one at the head, one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. And when she said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? For whom are you looking? 
Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not hold on to me, because I have yet to ascend to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. The word of the Lord. Easter. Triumphant return, quiet, rising. You rose without witness. How long did you sit in the tomb's darkness, sensation creeping back into your limbs? What did you think? Was your mind still human, or had you regained a divine consciousness? Did your hands and sides still hurt? How long did you wander the garden saying hello to creation, each in its own language? Did you bless the rock and the tomb, thank the dirt for its service, and play with the molecules of air that filled your lungs again? Did the flowers rejoice around your feet? their happiness so vibrant that Mary's grief was jarring? Had you started to depart, half God, half man, so far removed that you could not immediately remember her name? She too was creation. Woman, why are you crying? How long before you remembered the human frailty, that she needed her name? as much as the rocks and the flowers, that she did not see you as they did. And then you found her name, that word that bridged the human and the divine as it had at your birth, a remembrance, a new beginning, a calling of your people by name. Will you pray with me? God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Have you ever lost something? Like, I don't know, your keys, your phone? You're so certain you know where you put it. And then you spend a half an hour walking around your house, walking through every single place. You know you've been since you walked in the door, and for the life of you, it's not there. And you pray your phone is not on silent, and you pray that it still has battery, and then you go ahead and you give up, and you open your laptop, and you use the Find My iPhone feature, and it beeps, and it's sitting right in front of you. It's been sitting there the whole time. But you were so anxious and 
worried and freaked out about all the things that were on the phone and what if somebody texted you that you couldn't see for all of the immediate anxiety that the loss produced, the thing that was right in front of you. I kind of think about that when I think about this story. Because in the body of it, we see these three really human responses to loss and grief. We're talking about people who are devastated. Their friend was just killed very publicly. This person who they thought was going to save them, who directed them towards God, is suddenly absent. As far as they know, forever. There's this totality, this finality of death. And so when the disciples show up, when Peter and the disciple who Jesus loved show up and they look in the tomb, that's all they can see. One looks in and sees the linens there and nothing about that indicates to them that it's new life. There's just a missing body. Like on top of all the indignity of this person, this friend, this teacher they loved, there's not even a body anymore. And then Peter goes in and looks around, and there's also not a body. And these two men look around, and I'm fascinated that John tells us that the disciple, the disciple who loved Jesus believed. Like, believed what? For my money, I think probably believed what Mary had said, that the body was gone. That that last tie to their friend was also absence. Insult to injury. Utter grief. And in their grief and fear and sadness and overwhelmedness, they leave and go home. And they leave and go home and leave Mary there. Nobody checks in with her. No one's like, hey, you, the first person who found this out, are you okay? They just go. Which also feels like a very human response to overwhelming grief. Mary is not much better. She looks in and sees something at least as baffling, which is two people sitting there. She's immediately not alone, but it doesn't make any more sense. Woman, why are you crying? I, I feel like if that happened to me, I'd be so angry. Like, what do you mean, why am I crying? I'm here, I'm at a grave. What, I don't, I don't what, what do you, what is the, what is the question? This seems like fairly straightforward, why I'm crying even if you haven't been around for the last two weeks so you somehow missed this. So now you're grieving, you're alone, and your friend's body is gone, and also there are these people asking, who have like the nerve to ask you why you're crying. And in the midst of all that, she cannot recognize hope couldn't possibly see new life. And there's something really profound in that juxtaposition of 
God of Jesus, of the risen Lord, who has been walking through the garden, walking with creation, greeting the flowers, and Mary, who is so focused on death that she cannot see anything else. And then Jesus says, woman, why are you crying? Okay, the angel's fine, fine, but Jesus is God. Doesn't he know of all the people who knows? Doesn't he know? Greg talked last week about preaching on the thing that bothers you. This bothers me. This bothers me. What do you mean, woman, why are you crying? It's you! Hi, you're the problem! It's you! <sighs> okay. That's one reading, sure. It would be, we already know, we've, we're two-thirds of the way into the story, and we know Mary can't see him. She's not there. That's No part of her brain is like, oh, obviously my best friend is back from the dead. That's not a thing. That's not happening. She's not ready for that because she's so enveloped in the grief. And so rather than pop up, Jesus starts from this place of God-loving creation and says, Woman, why are you crying? It's an open-ended question. And she gives him she, he gives her room to feel her feelings. He doesn't rush her to make it okay. He meets her where she's at. And it is only after she has had space to name her experience, that he calls her name. There is something here about revelation, about new life, that can't be rushed. Healing, as it turns out, is a process. It takes time. And sometimes we need a little space before we're ready for good news. If you have ever been deep in grief or anger or sadness and had that one friend who cracks the joke too soon, and they mean very well, but you are not there yet, too soon, you might know what that feels like. Uh, it would be really easy, actually, to just end the sermon here to tie it up and say, okay, so God's alive, he comes to us in this garden, God is patient, and new life is abundant. But I think that's simpler than we all know real life really is. Because some of us are currently alone in the garden weeping. Some of us have had our deepest fears confirmed recently. Some of us are feeling overwhelmed in the echo chamber of death. And for those of us who are there, we're pretty certain no one's calling our name. And even if that's not true, it is highly unlikely that the literal risen Christ is going to walk into my living room and say, Graham, why are you crying? So here's what I think we need. 
Here's what I need. I need you. Because we are now the body of Christ. We aren't in first century Middle East. We're here now, and this is the body of Christ right here in this moment. If the body is going to show up, if the promise of the scripture is that God gives us space and then the body shows up for us, is going to seek us out, is going to accompany us, is going to listen to us, is going to call our names, is going to show us how it could be different. Each of you, in your garden moments, God is going to show you where it could be different. It is because we are going to do that for each other. You, this church, and you yourself, the challenge of this scripture, this Easter scripture, is that we are being asked to trust that God does not leave us alone. And that as a body, we are called to the work of noticing, of being present, of holding hope and holding space for one another, especially and exactly in the moments when we are afraid the darkness will win. A couple of years ago, I was at a church, a different church with a very robust music program, and I was introduced to the Andre Patterson version of a song called The Lord is Blessing Me, which is very up-tempo and is this bright, vibrant affirmation of all the ways that God is blessing the singers. The Lord is blessing me right now. Oh, right now, I said the Lord is blessing me right now. Oh, right now, he woke me up this morning, started me on my way. The Lord is blessing me right now. Oh, right now. I had that on my iPod for weeks. Yes, I had an iPod. <laughs> but no one needs to clap for the iPod. Uh, but I struggled with it also. And I, I finally went to my pastor and I said, Jackie, I like this song, but I don't get it. I don't feel like the Lord is blessing me. I actually feel like things are incredibly hard right now. Like, I'm kind of terrified all the time. Like, every time I open the news, it's worse. How can I sing, the Lord is blessing me? I don't believe that. And she laughed a little bit at, at my sentiment, but kindly. And she said, no, you don't understand. We don't sing because we already believe. We sing that we may believe. We sing ourselves into belief. We confess the risen Christ, the new life, the coming reign, not because we're always certain, but because we hope that by continuing to affirm it, it will take root in us 
in such a way that it will continue to be present at some fundamental level in the moments when it really doesn't feel like it. I have felt like that this week. I can't tell you this is the sermon that I want to preach. There's a lot happening in the news that I find wildly overwhelming that makes me so angry and so scared. And I a little bit resent that there's this voice in the back of my head going, but the resurrection. And yet there it is, but the resurrection. And when I'm here with you together, we say, but the resurrection to each other. You hold hope for me, faith for me. You take action for me, and I hope to take action for you, because that is how we continue to sing a resurrection song together as a group of voices in the moments when things seem darkest. Things are dark, and they might get worse before they get better. And we are the body of Christ. We need each other. Seek each other out. Call each other's names. Speak a word of life to someone into the deafening silence of death. This is the work that we're called to. It is holy, it is urgent, and it will take all of us to see it through. May it be so. Amen.